In Claire Elston's mind, she had no other option. She had to get a motorcycle if she was ever to avoid the pasta salad eating marathoner that each morning she was forced to sit with on her way to work. The smell is just so horrible. I thought, I can't do this anymore. Either I'm going to stab her to death or <laughs> I need to find another option. Well, you're just going to have to listen to this episode to really fully understand that one. But anyway, with her new motorcycle, she rode the deserted early morning streets of London and soon began to imagine where else her bike could take her. And it wasn't long before she was taking a break from her 12-hour days working as a London stockbroker for a true African adventure, solo by motorcycle, London to Cape Town. That ride and something her grandmother said to her. I wish when I was your age, I'd done the things that I'd wanted to do and not the things other people expect me to do. And I wish that I'd been braver. That was the catalyst for a new career and life in Tanzania, Africa. I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. We got a good one for you. Max BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Dress Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you're going to want a compact and reliable tire inflation method, and the Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system. It'll inflate your flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio, made in the USA, and comes with a lifetime warranty. And Motorcycle Consumer News Magazine just chose the Cycle Pump as their top pick in a compressor shakedown. Their website, www.cyclepump.com. I'm Sam Manicum. Nick Sanders. Terry Borden. Sandy Borden. Jack Borden. Graham Field. Austin Vince. Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray. David Peterson. Rachel. Ed March. Glenn Hickstead. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser. Dave Barr. Michelle Lanfear. Tiffany Coates. Herbert Schlant. Zoe Cannell. Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins. Joe Rush. Jeremy Craker. Simon Thomas. Lisa Thomas. Simon Pavey. Grant Johnson. Robert Wick. Seth Simon. Elizabeth Martin. Carol Duvall. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their unique strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. And that has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com the MotoBreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers oil to your chain with a felt pad that's mounted on your swing arm, which eliminates the problems of exposed nozzles near your sprockets. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com. That's two eyes in there. www.motobreeze.com. <laughs> Well, 
as you heard in the intro, Claire Elston's story begins, at least for us, riding to work with pasta salad and ends with her running a social enterprise in Tanzania designed to improve safety and motorcycling for locals, while at the same time giving those locals or other locals jobs. In between, she rides from London to Cape Town solo on her motorcycle. So much going on. So first we're going to meet Claire and then we're going to talk with Graham Field because Graham is in Tanzania volunteering for Piccadilly because they need volunteers to help with wait a second I'm getting way ahead of myself let's begin with Claire But what do I do? This is this is quite a complicated one. Um, well, I run Piccadilly. Okay, so uh, my name is Claire Elston. I'm from the UK, from England, and um, I run Piccadilly, which is um, Africa's first women's motorcycle maintenance workshop. And we also do all kinds of other things around keeping people in Africa safe on their motorcycles. Claire, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio. Thank you. I'm very excited to be with you today. I thought you were a stockbroker. <laughs> yes, once upon a time, Jim, I really was for seven or eight years, but that seems like quite a long time ago now. You, you know, your story starts out as you being a stockbroker and then decide to go on a motorcycle trip. We're going to talk about that, but but I'm really sort of curious, like to become a stockbroker, that's not something, um, well, it, it's not a job that you would go into with no training, is it? Do you know, this is remarkable. I had this conversation exactly today because my degree was not in economics or maths or statistics or anything. It was in, or finance even, it was in classics and German. So I spent a year in Germany studying Latin and Greek and I spent, you know, three years in the UK doing that. I had no prior background to finance at all. In fact, embarrassingly, before I started that job, I didn't even know the trading floor still existed. I mean, I was totally ignorant, but it is actually a job you have to just learn on the job. There's a degree of theory and obviously there's regulations and that's really important but the art of it's really a sales job but you need to understand what moves markets you just learn on the job so uh, it's quite weird in that way how long did you do it for initially I did it for seven years and then I took the year year and a bit out to do my trip and then I did it for another year and a half uh, and then I quit so in total it was kind of getting on nine ish ten years yeah so why all of a sudden does it become something you don't want to do? I mean, it sounds like a dream job. For many people, they'd listen to this and go, man, that, yeah. I would love to have that job. You got to be making lots of money and the, the excitement. Do you know, I totally get all of that. And there were days when I would be at work on a really fulfilling, interesting day. And by fulfilling, I mean, I guess that I suddenly felt like I understood an element to how a business worked or, you know, I'd made a really good call on, you know, buying a, a share ahead of a huge 20% surge in the share price over a period of months or something. That was a really great day. Or when I felt like I'd really added value for a client. But the problem for me was with this job, I mean, absolutely. I was so lucky because I got to have a front row seat on not only understanding how like a whole range of industries worked by asking the people involved. I mean, it was, it, you know, the, the, the leaders in those fields. But I mean, also to an extent, I also got a front row seat on my financial crash and there was nothing more frightening than being on the trading floor of Merrill Lynch when Lehman went down and our own share price cratering 30% a day. And we were doing fantastic commissions because everyone was just dumping shares. But at the same time, our clients were saying to us, uh, you might be bust by Monday. So we actually can't trade with you anymore. It's, it was really perverse. But so in a way, a wonderful life experience. But at the same time for me personally, 
I've never been motivated by money. So in terms of ultimately where I found purpose, in my role, I was just an agent, really. A salesperson is more or less an agent. And so at a certain point, if you boil it down, yeah, it's important that pension funds make good returns because we're all, most of us, I guess, have paid into a pension and we need to think about our retirement. But ultimately, you know, I kind of felt like I'm not sure that I'm really delivering the best value to these people. Do I really deserve what I get paid? And is this, if I went home tomorrow and did something else, am I really replaceable? Probably yes. And at a certain point, I felt like, what am I contributing to the world here that really means something or really help, really helps somebody or really gives value to someone in some way? And I guess I just felt like I'm not sure this is it, really. Um, so that's kind of how I decided, you know what, I think I need to take a step out for a while, maybe on two wheels and uh, try something different. Uh, I mean, I can relate to just every, just about everything you've said there, except that first question when you said you asked yourself, do I really deserve what I'm getting paid? Who asks that question? <laughs> like who goes to their no, employer I mean, and says, hang on, you know what? I think we're overdoing this. You're going to have to cut me back 20%. I'm just feeling, you know, I'm, I'm not worth this money. No, well, I know, I know what you mean, but I, I, certainly in the UK, people in my previous position are paid more than friends of mine who are doctors, nurses, t- teachers in some really tough schools. And I couldn't, I think for me, I don't know whether I'm overly moralistic. I don't know, but I don't think so. I just thought, do I really deserve to be getting paid at times multiples of what these people are and they're really at the cold face and they really are shaping young lives and saving lives and all these things and really does this yeah I don't know I just wasn't comfortable with it um and I think at a certain point for most people you have to look you be able to look yourself in the eye and say yeah this all makes sense I, I'm my life feels balanced I feel like I'm contributing I have a purpose whether it's through your job or some other way it doesn't have to be your job and of course I understand for people with a lot of kids and they've got a lot of commitments and they they do need a certain income fine I'm not making a judgment about anybody but I knew for me it the balance was off it really felt off you know so uh and I think it comes a point where if you're getting a, a pay rise and it's not even exciting anymore because the thing that you really want is not more money but more time so whether it's to explore or to to grow or to see more of the world and understand more of the world, um, that became what it was for me. So and not to feel perpetually exhausted <laughs> and stressed. That was a big deal as well. So where do two wheels come in for you, like in your life sort of? Is that something you started, you know, was that your first vehicle? No, not at all. Do you know, I was never really, I, I know this is almost sacrilegious to say, but I was never really that interested in motorbikes really, I don't come from a biking family at all. Um, there was no motorbiking influences at all, but it changed when I started my first job actually, because, um, like I said, I had to be in work for six thirty in the morning and my first job was in Canary Wharf, which is way out the east side of London. And I was renting a room way out the west side. So I was having to get on the tube, the underground at 20 past five in the morning, swap tubes three times. And the thing that really did it for me, it wasn't so much of, okay, spending the best part of an hour on, on the tube, and all the swaps and the, and the cold mornings and everything. It was the fact that there was a girl who was always on the same tube. And I think she was training for the marathon. And she always used to crack open this Tupperware pot of pasta salad, chicken pasta salad. And she was always in my carriage. And the smell of this pasta salad was just so horrible. I thought, I can't do this anymore. Either I'm going to stab her to death or <laughs> I need to find another option. So all my colleagues used to ride motorbikes to work because it was just convenient. And you know what? My commute, which has, was becoming 
becoming a real irritation factor, but came a complete joy overnight. The minute I got my bike license and I had the, the embankment, the whole streets of London to myself at 5.30 in the morning, it was the most fun. And I just felt so free. And yeah, so that's how it started. It was just commuting. And then you know, I had a really wonderful colleague who introduced me to off-roading. And then I just started thinking about, well, what? And I hadn't heard of, you know, Hub or ARR or anything at this point. The whole world of overlanding was not something I was even vaguely aware of. But I just started getting into, you know, I think it was the long way around, long way down thing. That for me was very much my introduction to, oh, you can really travel on a motorbike. And then my whole world exploded. And that's when I started getting ideas about bigger things, I think. I have to say, you're the first person I've ever spoke with that started uh, riding motorcycles because they wanted to avoid stabbing a, a chicken <laughs> pasta salad eating marathon runner to death on a on a tube. And by the way, for North Americans, the tube is the subway, in case you're wondering what she was riding in the morning. But yeah, that's a unique um, entrance into motorcycling, I have to say. <laughs> but <laughs> you mentioned long way round, long way down. That's sort of inspiring you. Is this while you were still working as a stockbroker? You're watching these movies? Yes, yes, yeah. I used to come home exhausted, eat my dinner and watch one of those DVDs. And it was sad because I, that's literally all I knew. So I would watch those two videos back to back relentlessly for goodness knows how many months on end. I mean, deeply sad in the vain hope that somehow if I kept watching it, it would become real. And of course it never would. And at one point, I think the DVD became so worn out, it actually stopped working. <laughs> and at that point, I realized, you know, this is really sad because no offense. I mean, I know people have really strong opinions about both those shows, especially a long way down, whatever. So regardless, it still, it was my, it was my opening into a whole different world. And, but I did realize, you know what, you, you probably at a certain point need to either move on with your life or do something about this for yourself. Because of course, watching a DVD doesn't make it real. So that was a big thing. Yeah. For, certainly for me. And when you're now sort of getting, um, I, I guess, uh, somewhat uh, dissatisfied at work, or at least considering other options, how, how do you come up with the idea of going riding a motorcycle? Because that's not a career change. That's not something you're obviously you're gonna you're gonna go and no. you're gonna do that for the rest of your life. No. That's a vacation. No. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for me, it was thinking, because I used to have these fantasies of riding to work, but instead of actually riding to Canary Wharf, I just take a few right left turns and then go to Dover and just, just, just kind of have, just follow the road and have an adventure and that freedom. I was yearning for it. So for me, I just thought I would love just to be able to take maybe a year and just to leave all that finance stuff behind and just be totally open to other people, other places and explore and try to understand a little bit better how other people live and how other people, yeah, what their existence is like. Cause I felt like mine had become really myopic. And, um, so it was initially, it was absolutely just, can I just like press pause on, on this existence that I have and just see something completely different and become immersed in it really. Um, and I did think, even though it was a vacation, I did think, you know, I, I, I was so aware that especially traveling alone, I'd probably get into a few scrapes here and there and inevitably, however much I might try and be responsible for myself, almost certainly strangers would probably end up helping me and showing generosity in that way. And so I thought, well, with that in mind, what can I do along the way to, to give something back in some way um, to maybe a project or maybe a who knows something? And that's how I came up with this idea of, well, OK, finance, I've, I have a finance background. Microfinance is something that I think can often be um, 
often usually really good and much needed so maybe I could do some work with a microfinance organization along the way and uh you know give back in that respect so there was a little bit of an element of trying to do something good for someone else apart from just me (laughs) but yeah ultimately it was meant to be a holiday so you head off on this trip that you this vacation really at this point a holiday Mm -hmm. you're going by yourself right so you're heading off to Africa by yourself on your first adventure Uh uh-huh that's right that's a big step it, it is. I mean, not least because I'd never even ridden on the other side of the road before. Uh, and I hadn't even, so I hadn't even been to France, you know, like on a, on a week long trip or something. Um, I'd been to Mongolia on a guided trip though for 10 days, which was brilliant, but I didn't really have any responsibility for anything apart from not crashing and killing myself. And I'd done the same thing in South Africa, brilliant fun, but I'd never ever even packed up my boat motorbike for more than a night and and gone and certainly gone anywhere abroad so it was quite a big leap so what was your trip like oh it was incredible um it was i mean certainly traveling across europe and then to turkey was just i was just absolutely fantastic i had a brilliant time and and i think i'd always thought so much about getting through africa but that initial part was also just a brilliant experience and then but you know there were some tricky parts certainly egypt was the first country in the continent of africa that i came to uh, and that was actually really challenging for me. Um, I think particularly as a, as a single female on a motorbike, I think a lot of local people really misinterpreted what it meant. So I had a lot of unwelcome advances. There were situations where I felt quite threatened and it was really, that was extremely difficult, uh, as well as the fact that the bureaucracy there is just off the charts or certainly was when I was there, which is 2012-ish time. But then once I actually got out of Egypt, um, I mean, I had an absolutely incredible time and whether it was even Sudan, which a lot of people in the UK were thinking, oh my goodness, is that safe? Are you going to be okay? I I had nothing but kindness and incredible hospitality from people. Um, And then every single country after that was, which it's always amazed me how you pass through a border, which is a relatively arbitrary thing in in many respects, but the geography changes, the landscape changes, the the dress, the language, the everything. And it was that constant joy and slight disorientation actually for the first few days of, okay, what's the gig here? what are the norms? What is this like? But, but that real joy of just exploring and feeling completely free, I absolutely loved. I really just loved it. Are you doing your own work on your bike while you're going through this trip? Yes. And, and that also was not easy because I'd, I'd done some training in advance, but actually I, I initially was really, um, I would say intimidated by the bike, uh, the thought of even doing something as simple as checking the oil level and topping it up. I mean, literally, I was not used to doing those things. And I was petrified of accidentally somehow blowing up that entire bike. I don't know how I thought I could do that, but it just seemed like this thing is so important. And I know that I just don't know a lot and that kind of thing. But actually, I... um, I was really fortunate because whenever I was in a situation where I was feeling uncertain, especially this always happened in Europe, um, some sort of bearded Dutchman, or it could be some other version, but someone generally with a beard would turn up and, and just point out what I needed to do or say something reassuring and give me some guidance. And then I just had that feeling of, okay, yeah, no, I do know what I'm doing. Everything's fine. And I, I feel better. And then it just seemed to flow from that point. So yeah, I, I did. I was pretty obsessive with maintenance pretty much every day. And I had my checks I would go through. And that was my way of feeling like I was trying to take some responsibility for my safety. And also I absolutely knew, especially after Egypt, that I didn't want to ever have a situation where I felt in any danger. Um, but the bike 
was going to let me down because I hadn't looked after it. So I thought if I look after the bike, it might look after me in return. And that's my way of trying to keep myself safe. So I actually started to really enjoy it. So what you learned from all of this, I guess, is that beards mean mechanical abilities? <laughs> Absolutely. Every time, Jim. I can't explain why. And suffice to say, I haven't grown a beard. But uh, I, I, it was strange. It was uncanny. Even when I was having challenges with my uh, petrol camping stove, a random bearded Dutchman would always appear. It was, it was uncanny. But um, yeah, absolutely. So I, it was a real, it was really nice though, actually, that camaraderie of bikers, I suppose, um, really got me through those first few weeks of just feeling nervous about everything. It was great. It was really nice. Did you make it all the way to Cape Town without a puncture? Yeah. You yeah, did. I did. Wow. So, so you basically had no trouble, really, like nothing major. Nothing major. I did have, um, and again, definitely nothing major, but I was... Um, doing a really exciting border crossing in Namibia, which it, it, basically where the Orange River in Namibia um, it forms the border between Namibia and South Africa. And it's a really not very used border crossing. It's well out the way. It's all off-road, a stunning scenery. But that was exactly where my the hose that came off, um, came off the petrol tank into the engine, I think it was, um, perished. And so all of a sudden I had a real stink of petrol near my leg and I just simply needed to replace this rubber hose. Not that technical, clearly, but it was such a hot day. There was no shade and it's kind of a fiddly job. Um, so, but I enjoy, you know, it's just kind of fun. You think, okay, it is what it is. I've got, luckily I had a bit of spare hose there and I've got time. I don't need to panic. And that was the, the biggest drama that I had with anything mechanical. So I think, yeah, it was, it was brilliant in that respect. Did you find anywhere where you could put your microfinance idea to work? Uh, well, do, do you know, this was incredible as well, because I'd rung a few places in advance of the trip and I'd come across one organization in Malawi uh, that said, yeah, you can come and stay with us for maybe three months. That's great. But in terms of what we need, we actually are fairly well covered with our finance strategy. But what we really need some help is with our motorbikes. And I was like, what, uh, sorry, you, you, what are you doing with motorbikes? I said, oh, well, we have 80 of them and we're using them to put our loan officers on them so that uh, they can get to women in rural communities because actually the people in most need of this finance aren't the people living close to town because they're probably a bit wealthier anyway. I mean, we're talking relatively, but the women in the rural areas, no one goes there. They can't get to town. So we put our loan officers on motorbikes to get to them, which is great. But actually, they're breaking down all the time. It's We're having a lot of issues with downtime and project and, you know, field officers getting stuck in the field and also the repair costs. So it's becoming a real issue. So can you come and just basically work out what's going wrong and fix it? Um, and at the time when I was told that, I sort of thought, well, how on earth could I possibly know what's going wrong? It could be potentially hundreds of different things. But I sort of said, look, I'm not a mechanic, um, but let me, by all means, I'll turn up and I'll do my absolute best for you. But please understand, I'm, I'm not a mechanic. I, I, you know, they said, no, 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 you probably know more than you think. Just turn up and see what you can do. <laughs> so that's what I did, um, which was which was quite an experience. Well, sure, you're a stockbroker that is afraid you're going to blow up your bike <laughs> and they're asking you to come <laughs> and figure it out. But, but you're really not going, I mean, in my mind, when I listen to you say this, it's like you're not really going to look necessarily, in, in, at least in what I would imagine, in, uh, a repairing a vehicle as, as much as a system, because that's the real problem, isn't it? Yeah. And that's exactly what I discovered when I got there, because, you know, I sort of said, OK, well, can you show me one or two of your best bikes? And they were like, yeah, sure. And they showed me this thing, which was such a sad wreck. And you could see immediately. I mean, I remember taking looking at the chain and it was 
so tight it was about to snap and it was extremely rusty. So like, that's, that tells you a certain amount. The tires had no tread left on them. And when I tried to look at that, I was obsessed with air filters. So when I tried to take the fairing off the side of the bike to get to the uh, air filter box, I remember an ant's nest fell out. <laughs> <laughs> and then I opened up the, the casing where the filter should have been. I couldn't find where the filter was. And I thought, crikey, is this just a different design, you know? So I was scooping out all this sand from the air filter box. Kind of like, okay, is there something at the bottom of this? But literally, I dug out several hands worth of sand and there was no air filter in there. And then I thought, this is just weird. So when the nominal mechanic walked by and I said, oh, my friend, you know, it seems like, I mean, forgive me, but it seems like there's no air filter in there. He goes, yeah, that's true. And I said, are you still riding it? He said, yes, yes, we are. I said, but are you not worried to be riding in these sandy, dusty conditions with a no air filter? He said, no, so far, no problem. No problem. We're saving money. And I was like, oh, no, please, please. So very quickly, you're absolutely right. The, the whole system of maintenance and understanding, also the concept of investing in something which hasn't yet broken in some communities is a complete anathema. So... I did understand that, but at the same time, it was clearly, it was costing them time and money and issues uh, and it couldn't be, it couldn't continue. So it, it was this entire thing of, okay, what is the necessary maintenance? How are we going to set up a process? But also how can we empower the, the, the loan officers who are the ones who are being inconvenienced all the time and stuck in the middle of nowhere to at least know what maintenance that they could do, uh, how to keep an eye on safe, safe conditions of their bikes. I mean, particularly things like chain tension and tire tread and those things that you can, and, and the level of your brake fluid in your hydraulic brakes. Those are the things that you as a rider absolutely should keep an eye on to be able to say, okay, that doesn't look right. Or I'm sure I'm riding on a bike with a brake that may be uh, half used out or completely used by now. And so that's basically what I did. I designed a program to, to train those guys. And then I went around Malawi training up the loan officers in maintenance. What's the history of motorcycles for them? Is it something that's fairly new? I mean, I'm just sort of curious. Of, I can understand what you're saying about you mentioned that, and I think it's a really good observation of uh, the spending money on something before it actually breaks. It does, I mean, you know, mm -hmm. you can, from one angle, you can look at it and say, well, yeah, why would you bother doing that? And the air filter too. I mean, if it clogs, we'll take it out. Hey, look, problem solved. So you can understand where a lot of that comes from, but is there not a history of motorcycles there? Are there not, um, you know, um, systems set up in place for, for motorcycling in general? No, not at all. And, and it, it's such an interesting issue because certainly at the time when I visited Malawi, and I sadly don't think it's changed too much, it's the fifth poorest country in, in Africa, um, which is kind of saying something. And the thing is there, there is this mindset of why would I spend precious financial resources that may be needed tomorrow by, or even today by a sick relative or whatever else, or for school fees on something that isn't yet a problem, because maybe tomorrow, goodness knows, maybe I'll be dead or who knows what. So it doesn't seem, you know, that thinking about planning for the future and that certainty of, no, no, I'll be here in a week's time. And that chain will be even more of a problem by then and and I'll want to spend money on it then isn't really there uh, and actually that's something that is a luxury which I never really thought of before but that certainty we always have about no no I'll, I'll still be around in a week or a month's time is something else but also no there's not much of a history of motorbikes in fact unlike Tanzania where I live now you don't see that many motorbikes on the road there because people just can't afford them um and also there's a sad history of a lot of projects of various kinds, particularly NGOs, but all kinds, donating you know, with the best heart, donating um, equipment, but particularly vehicles, uh, but without understanding perhaps 
the full extent of people's lack of awareness about the importance of for doing maintenance, but also providing a budget for buying spare parts and that kind of thing. So I saw so many situations where there were just graveyards of broken motorcycles and broken down, you know, land cruisers and broken down pickup trucks and broken down uh, tractors, all these things that you think, oh, please, you know, it's probably the problem's small, but the resources aren't there and the knowledge isn't there to sustain those things. And so it, it, things just fall apart really quickly. Um, and of course, the conditions are tough, but no, that, that knowledge isn't there. As well as the supply chain, because that's so important. Mm. Even just a small part can set you back if you have no supply chain. Completely, completely. And this is one of the things we were battling. I mean, these were Yamaha DT125 bikes from memory. And buying a genuine replacement Yamaha chain, it was available, but I think it was something like three times more expensive than a cheap Chinese fake one. So of course, logically, you look at that and think, well, I mean, why would I spend three times more on something when this one looks identical, except it had proven itself that you would need 10 of those Chinese motorcycles, motorcycle chains, for the same duration as if you'd just been running the Yamaha one. So of course, over time, the value is terrible. And every time you're having downtime to replace the thing or whatever else. But again, if people are living on a sort of day-to-day mindset, it's not always that easy. And also when money's scarce, um, it's difficult to always think like that. So were you successful? Did you manage to get them sorted out so they had a regular maintenance schedule and a supply chain and they were able to keep, keep their motorcycles on the road? Yeah, it was great, actually. So it was a combination. It was kind of a multi-pronged strategy. So talking to the loan officers was great. And I was expecting some more pushback because sometimes, you know, in a male-dominated area, which motorcycling can be, especially in somewhere like Malawi, I wasn't sure if my... um, It wasn't... I would say it was offer of of sharing information. I wasn't claiming to be teaching people because that seemed a little bit pompous, but I was like, okay, this has worked for me. Has it worked for you? And actually people really received that well, which was, then they wanted to learn because they're like, oh yeah, we're fed up with all these breakdowns and things. And this makes sense. And it's interesting and it's fun actually. Um, so that was one part of it, but also I spent a lot of time with the procurement manager who was really struggling to get comfortable with the idea of buying spare parts that were three times more than the ones he'd been buying before. Um, so then I had to escalate it a little bit higher and also talk to the man in charge and explain, explain that too, but it was okay. It was all possible. And actually in so many of these situations, if you, if you're just prepared to take the time and you have the time to have these conversations at various levels, things generally do change. So the running costs for those bikes reduced by 60%, but through a combination of better maintenance and and using the right spare parts, which just got me thinking, wow, what a buzz, you know, that was only really two or three months worth of work, but really felt like, wow, that that's, that's helped. That's made a difference. You know, that's something that people wanted and, um, and it's made an impact on every front. So that's made, um, a real difference. And, and so for me, that was a huge buzz. And now it's over and you head back home. What do you do? Yeah. So I safely get to Cape Town. Uh, I get back home and I, first of all, (laughs) I first of all went up to Scotland, um, where I spent time before and I love it up there. It's in the highlands of Scotland. And I, uh, was able to hole up in a little cottage up there. And my plan was because, you know, of course, by this point, I actually do understand a little bit more about there's all these amazing adventures around the world. And I'd been to my first hub meet and, you know, and I'd heard about people like Sam Manicom and I started reading his books and I was thinking, wow. And of course, Lois Price. And I thought, wow, you know, maybe, maybe I can write a book, you know, I'd love to be like these people. It's incredible. 
and I'd blogged along the way and that was great fun and I'd loved it. Just me on my iPhone in my tent for two hours every couple of nights and it was just it was just great. But you know what? It's really hard to write a book, I discovered. Um, I was struggling. Plus, getting from sunny Africa in August back to really getting slightly colder UK by September, October and being in a freezing cottage quite isolated is not really the best thing. So that was not very successful. So after probably the springtime, I decided, you know what, I think I need to probably go back to London, probably go back to something like my old job because I, I you know, it, I, I, I can't see another route right now. Um, and so that's what I did. But, you know, life had another, another idea for me, I think, because within a week of doing that, my bike by this point had arrived back from South Africa. I moved back into my old flat and, um, Within a week of starting my old job, my motorbike that I had ridden, my trusty motorbike that I'd ridden from motorcycle from from London to Cape Town, uh, was stolen, mm. um, and I I still haven't seen it again since, and I, oh brutal, but in a way, it propelled me to try to find other ways to keep the trip alive beyond riding the motorcycle every day which had been my touchstone to this trip, really, because a lot of it, sometimes I felt like, was that even real? Did that really happen, this incre- incredible trip? And then I'd look at the bike and see all the scratches and cuts on it and think, oh, yeah, I remember that accident and, you know, that moment and whatever. So I had to find a different way to keep it alive. And that's how I ended up um, meeting a great guy called Ron at another hub meet uh, about a few months later. And I was, he explained about a charity he was involved with and how they were looking to put midwives on motorbikes in southern Tanzania. And lots of conversations then ran, and it seemed as though they needed somebody to help train up these midwives in maintenance and um, and to help start initiate this project. And, and would I be interested in going? And I just thought, well, absolutely. That sounds like a really fun project. So I arranged to take some holiday from work and got myself down there. Because you're back at uh, work. You're already back Because I'm back then. at work by this time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, which was difficult. <laughs> uh, really difficult to re-enter that world after you've been living on a really, really frugal existence, but still extremely happily. And you really see the true value of money and and how how people, other people are really scratching by. And, and you see the world through a totally different lens. And some people have said to me, you know, after six weeks of being back in the UK, it'll be like nothing ever changed for you. You know, you'll just slot right back in. And and this will this whole world of overlanding in Africa will just fade into the back of your brain. And I totally didn't, uh, absolutely didn't. And I think for me, it was, it, it took taken over my brain and I just couldn't let it go. So the opportunity to go back to Tanzania and to do something with motorbikes and something useful was just, ah, I just leapt at it. So you take vacation from your job. That Mm -hmm. is sort of a a sign there that me, you're planning on coming back. (laughs) This is just a vacation. By the way, does Ron have a beard? Ron does not have a beard. I'm not sure. I can't imagine Ron with a beard actually, but, but he is an excellent individual despite not having a beard. Right. Well, it explains why he's coming to you though for motorcycle repair (laughs) information. He has no beard. (laughs) Absolutely. Exactly. He just couldn't manage on his own. <laughs> you've actually cracked that. You've, you've worked out the exception there, Jim. Well done. Yes. So, that's why I'm, I'm very that. quick. So talk about this trip then to Tanzania. So it was a pretty brief trip. I think it was 10 days in total, I think. But um, yeah, flew to Darn, took a little Cessna flight down to Songhai. I mean, way down the south of Tanzania, the poorest region. And the idea was um, I would be training, I think it was three or five midwives so that they could then ride out on motorcycles that the charity would be providing to run prenatal or antenatal clinics for rural women in Tanzania who are pregnant. Because 
in Tanzania, uh, around 24 women every day really tragically die in pregnancy and childbirth through preventable causes. And it's just a horrible situation, a horrible statistic. And it particularly affects women who are living in rural areas. And actually, I think something like 80% of the population in Tanzania currently are living in rural areas. So it's by and large, you know, the, the majority of people here. It's a big country. And one of the main contributors of that is a lack of prenatal care. So screening and, and, and letting women know, hey, you know, when you want to give birth, make sure you can get yourself to a well-equipped health facility or hospital, because if you have a complication, you're giving birth at home, it could be a real issue. And even without that, it needs to be sterile and clean and et cetera. Um, also, then there's a lack of transport to get from um, the home to the, to the hospital or the health center. If a woman is in that situation, she's giving birth and she needs to get there. There's often a lack of transport because it's middle of the night. It's a rural area, that kind of thing. Um, and then the final issue is when people actually get to hospital, sometimes there's a lack of care, a lack of swift response, that kind of thing. So this charity was trying to address the first issue, which is simply preventative, you know, run these antenatal clinics in rural areas and tell women about the importance of screening for malaria and using nets and, and you know, weighing and measuring all that good stuff. That's the, that was the point. So I was trying to uh, teach the maintenance so that the bikes would be sustainable. So with this being the second project you've worked on, was there one thing that sort of stood out to you that was the real problem or is it just a combination of a whole bunch of things? Do you know what? It was It was the fact that maintenance can't be viewed in isolation because actually what, what was really interesting to me is, of course, and that's not to say that maintenance isn't important, it's really important and it can definitely save lives, but... Um, I just had a lot of time or opportunity, or maybe I, I just started noticing, I'm not sure, but I just really started noticing how um, a lot of the contributing factors to the wear and tear on these bikes was because people had never been to any kind of driving school. They'd maybe been taught to ride these bikes from, and I'm talking about general people, I'm not talking about the midwives, but if we looked at the local community, motorbikes were everywhere being ridden as taxis. But people generally had been taught by a friend or a brother. So people's bad habits had been passed on and magnified. So I would see guys who would hold their clutch in all the way down a hill or turn off their engine to save petrol, but without any thought as to, do I still have the same level of control of my motorcycle now that I've done this? You know, am I creating excessive wear on my clutch? Am I less easy to hear uh, when, when my engine is off? You know, all these things. But also people just not wearing helmets or wearing them back to front or wearing them really loose with no clip done up. And you just... And you, you look at this and you think, am I just being obsessive or is this a real problem? And then I spoke to the guy who was hosting me. He was a medic, a local medic. And he said, you have no idea. <laughs> just if you want, come with me to the local hospital. There is a dedicated motorcycle crash ward in this hospital for the riders, but also the passengers and the passersby who get mown down on a daily basis by these motorbike taxi drivers just getting into all kinds of a mess. So absolutely having a roadworthy vehicle is important, but if you're actually simply a dangerous driver and also creating excessive wear and tear on your bike because you're doing some crazy stuff, but you're not wearing a helmet. I mean, all these things just add up together. So you kind of need to take a holistic approach to all this if you're going to try and solve any of these problems. So I did, I stupidly went with him to the hospital. I say stupidly because I am rubbish at blood and gore and smells of, you know, disease. So I, I really, I, I felt the clouds of unconsciousness coming over me a few times, but I, I managed to fight that. But Oh, these injuries. And this is the other thing, because the medical services are not really equipped to look after people, 
who've had really extreme crashes, compound fractures, complicated head injuries. If you have a crash, it's probably a life-changing injury for you. You'll probably never walk again. You'll probably never function again. And now you're not generating an income for your family. You're probably a burden. And and that whole magnifier as well, because, you know, we kind of take it for granted. Okay, it's it's unfortunate, massively unfortunate if you have a crash, but you're probably going to be more or less okay again afterwards. In this case, no. And of course, no one's got any any kind of life insurance or 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 any kind of anything. So you're really screwed. Um, so it's a huge issue. And it turns out, you know, across Tanzania, there are motorcycle crash wards absolutely everywhere. So um, it's a big, big problem. So um, it's, yeah, so it's just basically a, a huge issue and one that isn't really or wasn't really being tackled by any kind of agency or the government. It was just creating a huge, a huge strain on the, on the, on the, the government's coffers, but also just on a family basis, it was just, it was just hideous. Who pays for medical care? Interesting question. Generally, um, the government is supposed to pick up the tab for certain things, but only things like laboring mothers, uh, people with HIV, old people, they pick up the tab and kids, but they don't pick up the tab if you are a fit and healthy, otherwise fit and healthy young man. And it's typically people between the age of maybe 18 and 40 who are riding these motorbikes who've just had a crash through your own actions. You have to pay the bill for that. So um, it creates a strain on the hospitals because they've just got so many people coming in and they can't cope with it. But also it's a real shock to a family to have to generate the medical um, expenses or to cover the medical expenses when these guys are having crashes. It's a big, big issue. So now that you see this, this new sort of hurdle, what did you do with it? Well, I kind of, my brain started ticking because I thought, you know, to me, it was just so unnecessary. And I, I suppose I felt like, you know, I've had so much amazing training and, and in the, you know, in the UK, you, people complain about the test and things, but when I took it, it was very thorough. I have to say it was the older system, but I had great tuition. I I could go for advanced off-roading training, which I did. I could go for training with the police to make sure that I was still not developed any funny habits a few years down the line. I did all these really great trainings to make sure I was constantly improving my skills and, and staying safe. Here, there's nothing and there's nowhere to turn and no one's going to give you that training. So I just felt like, wow, I've had so many privileges and access to so much. And perhaps there's a way that I can actually share what I've learned and develop something that's appropriate to this area that can stop these unnecessary accidents happening. And I strongly felt like I think these accidents are happening not because people don't care. It's just no one's ever told them. And certainly even, you know, there's so many things in life where I feel like we all of us do things which to someone else may seem idiotic, but we've just never thought it through or no one's ever pointed out the flaw in what we're doing. And generally when someone says to you, hey, um, by the way, that thing, it's actually you're creating an issue with this, but if you did it this way, you wouldn't have that problem. Generally, most people, if it's done in the right way, go, hey, thanks, that's great. I had no idea, but thanks. Um, common sense isn't that common unless you get told about it. So I thought maybe this is something I could do something about. And my original idea was, could I start something which is as simple as a motorbike workshop, a simple one though, just doing basic maintenance at first and use it as a platform to promote maintenance and road safety and people wearing helmets and that kind of good stuff. But instead of, I didn't really want to start it as an NGO because I felt like, well, actually, I think there's a way that people can earn an income by doing this, whether it's by offering, you know, uh, tire pressure checks and blowing up tires or um, whether it's adjusting chain tensions. Those are things you can, people are prepared to pay money for and can pay money for. 
and that means that someone can earn an income. Why can't we do it like that? Why can't we have a social enterprise? So on the one hand, we're running safety classes in, and driving lessons and that kind of thing for motorcycles, but we're also offering services that people can pay a reasonable sum for and, and we can sustain ourselves with that income. And I thought, could we also do a twist on this, which is that all the um, all the apprentices, all the people delivering those services are women because you don't see many women in engineering and you certainly don't really see many women riding motorbikes, but it's not taboo. It's just not really done. And I think it's because there's a lack of role models and it's just something that nothing, no one's ever really fostered. But how about we try and do that? Because women tend to be, generally be a lot more effective in reinvesting whatever profits or income they make back into their families and into their education and that kind of thing and their health generally so quite a bit more so than men so i thought i wonder if we could do that so that was my original idea the investing money back in and you're saying that women are generally better than men that's actually a fact isn't it it, it is actually i mean i always feel a bit um a bit uh cautious saying that because I'm not the last thing that I'm trying to present is women are better than men or anything like that but there has actually been some research quite a bit of research gone into this which is I think women typically reinvest over 80% of their, of their take-home pay their profits back into kids education health men I think it's something between 20 and 40% it's quite a lot less so you definitely get a better magnifier by 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 empowering those women yeah, I just wanted to clarify that that's not necessarily, that's not your opinion. That's a, that's no, actually proven no. through, through research. <laughs> but what's happening to you at this point? What, what sort of change? I mean, you, you've sort of opened for a change in life. You said right from the start, you, you're sort of tired of your job. You've already went back to it. So it is your go-to. What's changing with you now? Or is there anything changing? Oh, completely. After this trip to Tanzania, and this was really the first time back to Africa since the road trip. And just the minute I landed back, even in Dar Airport, and for those who've been, I mean, it's hardly a beautiful place, but the, even the smell of the air, I just felt somehow relaxed. And even though I think my luggage got lost and there was this whole chaos at four in the morning, and then uh, the person who was supposed to pick me up had obviously given up the will to live by this point and just gone home and I didn't even feel vaguely stressed by it. I just felt like, yeah, I can sort everything. It's all cool. I feel relaxed and happy here. And it was just great to be back in Africa, you know? And so that totally took over my brain. And, and I tried to go back to work after this trip and, you know, just throw myself back into work. But I kept on this idea that I had about starting this workshop just was totally taking over my brain. And I can remember having uh, a chat with a trusted colleague just in a lunchtime and say, I just, I've got this idea. I, I can't seem to leave it alone. And um, I talked it over with her and she's very sensible. But I remember her saying, well, Claire, I don't see how this is going to work. I, I I just don't see, has anyone ever done this before? <laughs> I said, no. Uh, well, okay. And are you sure that it works? I'm like, no. And are you sure of X and Y and Z? And I was like, no, but I, I really think it could work. And just because mm. no one's done it before, does that mean they shouldn't? I mean, and I increasingly had this feeling like I have to try, even if I find out it's a totally wacky, stupid idea and no one wants it and it's just a disaster. I think I have to try. And I've always had this thing in the back of my brain. I never want to get to the age of hopefully 100. And, and you know, maybe my body's packing up by that point. I don't know. And think, oh, the thing that I always wish I had done, if only I had had a bit more courage or bravery or whatever it was, was this thing. And I never did it just because I was scared. Um, that to me doesn't seem quite, it's not the way I want to live. So I increasingly thought, I think I've just got to go and see if this works. And if it doesn't, then fine. But at least I know.
We're going to take a short break and be right back. But when we come back, we're going to listen to Claire's story about her grandmother. But we also have Graham Field after that. So stay with us. We're just going to thank a couple of sponsors that helped make this episode possible. So first, I want to introduce you to a new supporter for Adventure Rider Radio. The company is called off-grid moto now you want to pay attention to this because off-grid moto designs and manufactures adventure specific motorcycle luggage these are very cool looking bags they're totally made in the u.s they're manufactured on site which uh, means they can control the quality from start to finish and really importantly when it comes to this the, the small manufacturing processes is that they can make immediate changes so if they see something needs to be upgraded or changed around or even if they need to to modify something for their you know, just because they want to change the design they can do it right then and that's really important when it comes to that style manufacturing. So currently, off-grid moto products are made with a 1,000 denier fabric and two-layer water-resistant coating. So these water-resistant coatings are like a DWR water-repellent uh, coating on the outside and then a polyurethane one on the inside. They're a roll-top bag. You know, they look a lot like what you'd expect from a, a soft bag, but they're real tough looking and they use that molly strapping system, which is really important because if you want to strap something else to it, it gives you tons of attachment points. Drop by their website, have a look at the Chadwick Panniers. These are 30-liter panniers, fantastic. If you like soft luggage, you've got to have a look at this. www.offgridmoto.com. Again, www.offgridmoto.com. Drop by their website, and anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. I was going through some photos the other day from last summer. I'd went to, to Ontario to the Lawrence Hacking Overland Rally, which was great fun. And in the, the rally, they had a bunch of uh, different terrain to ride through, but some of it was really muddy. And there was one area there where the grooves were really deep with mud and the, it actually jammed the foot pegs back and pushed the mud through them. And uh, I saw the mud all packed into it, like really jammed into the foot pegs. But I, I got up and of course I'm paying more attention to the bike, get up and, and ride out of that. Next time I look at the pegs, they're clear. And that's part of the design because they're IMS foot pegs. That's part of their design. They call it watershed design. And what it is, is they make sure that all those surfaces are designed in such a way that nothing can jam in and stay there. And it's really important for foot pegs. But this is just one of the things that makes a quality foot peg is that forethought, that design planning, the R&D put into it, and especially after they make it. So that's why you should drop by and check out IMS foot pegs at their website, www.imsproducts.com. I'm talking from experience. Obviously, I've ridden with these things lots, and I know these are quality pegs, and you want quality pegs because you know how important they are. That's your contact to the bike. Drop by the website, www.imsproducts.com. Have a look at their ADV1 and ADV2 pegs in particular. I think I'm running the rally ones right now. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, always mention Adventure Rider Radio. That'll do a, a huge thing for us because it'll it lets them know that it's working for them. www.imsproducts.com. Com. It was your grandmother that sort of sparked that thought, wasn't it? About, you yes. know, arriving at your later years in life, looking back and thinking, geez, I wish I'd. Yeah. Absolutely. And she said this to me after she had a bad accident in her care home. And, you know, there's something really sobering about seeing your grandmother. Well, well tell, so, tell the story. What, what did she say to you? So she she had a care. I mean, she was in her 80s, I think mid to late 80s at this point. And she'd always been a very physically strong, tough woman, like from the north of England. People from the north, I mean, it's a stereotype, of course, but they're usually pretty hardy, no nonsense, you know, that kind of thing. And that's her. Um 
And she, she, you know, she could be getting a little bit frailer, but one day she had a fall in her care home and she broke both the lower arm bone, sorry, lower bones in her right arm, which is really nasty. And she had to have surgery to try and fix it. And it was bad. So I think a day or two after the surgery, I took a day off work and I went to see her because I was really worried about her. And, um, and we were just having a chat. And, and I mean, apart from anything, she'd suddenly shrunken down from being quite durable. And I used to joke she'd live forever and things because she just seemed like she had that, you know, she was in, you know, indestructible. And suddenly she just seemed very frail and fragile and elderly. And, and then she, out of nowhere, she just said to me, I wish when I was your age, I'd done the things that I'd wanted to do and not the things other people expected me to do. And I wish that I'd been braver. And she said it in such a, I guess, a really resigned tone, but I felt like she was saying it to me for a reason. And she'd never said anything like that to me before. I had every reason to think she'd loved every aspect of her life and she wouldn't have changed a bit of it. And to suddenly hear, actually, no, there were, she never did tell me, and she's still alive, but she's not quite so with it these days. She never did tell me, and I wish I'd asked, what it was that she wished she'd done. But the, the message was clear, which is, you know, everything runs out one day and do you want to, you know, don't let this be you. Don't, don't be 180 in a care home one day, sipping Horlicks and wishing you'd, you'd done something. And the only reason you hadn't done it was just a little bit of fear. So for me, that was a huge wake up, huge. So yeah, that's, that's actually been a huge, um, huge factor in how I make decisions now actually is, and it, I, I don't know if that sounds morbid. It, I hope it doesn't. I, I want to live for a really long time, but I just, it reminds me that, every day is, is precious and I shouldn't assume anything about that or waste it. I guess that's the point. And, and to really live it to the full and to try to give as best as I can um, and to have an adventure with it, I guess. So, so for me, I thought back on that and thought, you know what, if I think this thing has even half a chance of working, I have to find out if it will. And if it doesn't, and it just doesn't matter. It's fine. It's I've, I've learned something, but, uh, I just really had this really strong niggle. Like I think I have to give it a whirl. This idea of, of setting up a maintenance program and road safety program and, and getting women involved in it. I mean, it, it's totally altruistic. Did you think about making money at this point? Well, let, let me ask you first, when you were growing up, were you altruistic? Were you out there, you know, doing causes, doing charity work, that sort of thing? Is that something that's in your DNA? Uh, yeah, it is. Like, I never grew up, like, I certainly never grew up think, thinking I want to be a stockbroker. I actually wanted to be a vet. Um, but like I said, I pass out at the sight of blood and, and I'm not that good at chemistry and maths and physics. So I thought, well, that's probably not going to work out so well. But no, I mean, for me, I always used to get a buzz out of doing something that helps someone else or, or, you know, some sort of volunteering thing or where you could see you'd made a difference. I really like that stuff. So for me, it was never about, oh, when I grew up, I want the biggest house and the nicest handbag. I couldn't give two monkeys about that. Um, it was always about how to, how to feel alive and how to, and how to give something in, in a way, if that doesn't sound too naff. Um, so that was always my, always my thing really. So no, I, when I was thinking about setting this up, I never really thought too much about, but how am I going to make an income out of it? Or how, what's, what's in it for me? It was just what an incredible thing. If I could, if I could stop all these horrible, unnecessary deaths, because you kind of got to, I know a lot of people, some, well, some people would say, well, you don't know these people. They're not your neighbors. Why do you care so much? But actually, if you've spent a year on the road and you've had numerous incidents where completely strangers who had very little 
literally at certain points are picking you up out of from underneath your motorbike covered in mud um and here dusting you off and checking you're okay and packing off in your way and finding a friend to make sure that they lead you on the right path back to the right route or whatever people really going out their way to show you care and, and love in a sense just as a fellow human being it becomes really infectious and so actually when you look at people suffering unnecessarily through for a reason that you think goodness if you just had a bit more of a of training and knowledge this wouldn't have happened and look at the devastation it's caused i can't really turn away from that especially when i know i could be the one to to help fix that problem and it's rare that i do i mean i'm not a medic and i'm not a teacher and you know all the more obvious ways in which you can help people but this was like wow i think i can make a real difference and 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 avoid a lot of suffering for a lot of people and i just got to give it a well so what puts you in a position then to to go and and decide to make this this dream at least an attempt to make it a reality i guess um it, I, I suppose things became more and more intense at work and i realized you know what this really i can't dedicate my life to this and and by this point i'd saved a little bit of money from work that i thought you know what i could give myself the breathing space of a year if i live carefully and frugally and whatever else i could i could give myself the space to try this out. And I think I've got to. So I basically got to the September of 2015. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to go out and do another recce trip to Songea, to, to Southern Tanzania and see if this works. Talk to local people, ask if they, what they think of this idea. Is it acceptable? Is it a good one? Is it, what's, what are the issues? Blah, blah, blah. And just start, really. It was just a sort of, it felt like I was in a pressure cooker and something had to give. And I was like, yeah, I just think I just need to make this happen and, and see if it's possible. So that's what I did. So what is Piccolily? So Piccolily, oh, I should explain the name as well, because it doesn't explain itself. So in Swahili, which is the language of Tanzania and a couple of other countries too, um, a picky picky is a motorcycle. So that's the first part, the picky part. And then the second part in the UK, at least the lily is a flower of women and partnership and connection. And I thought, well, you put the two together and you get pick a lily, which is actually also spelt wrongly, but it's the name of my favorite chutney. (laughs) So that's got to also make sense, but it just felt like, yeah, we're trying to bring together communities and motorcycles and, and that whole thing. Um, and so Piccolily now, um, it started off by us physically building and crowdfunding with the amazing generosity of, you know, largely the motorcycling community has to be set from around the world, friends, contacts, blah, blah, blah. We crowdfunded the build of this workshop. Uh, we built it. It was finished by more or less January 2017. Uh, we got the business license sorted, a whole load of admin later. We have a workshop that's built. We then started looking for some um, some volunteers, some, um, what are they called? Women. That's the one. Um, to, who might be interested in working with us <laughs> as apprentices. Um, and around about this same time, we were approached by the district medical officer from our neighboring district who said, look, I've got these two motorcycle ambulances, which is like a motorbike with a sidecar that's been specially designed to carry a patient. It's, you know, you can lie flat and everything. It's like a stretcher and a cage on wheels. But we've got these two motorbike ambulances. They don't run anymore. And we really don't know why. And they've always been a bit of a problem. But, you know, we're a rural community of 700,000 people. And we don't have a functioning ambulance service. So can you get them working for us again? And we can run them. So of course, immediately, I'm interested. But when I go to check them out, he said, okay, uh, 
uh, so basically they've only got a thousand kilometers on the clock and I checked it and it's true. Uh, and there's all these contributing factors when you start asking some questions as to why they didn't work anymore. So long story short, he said, can you fix them? We said yes, but let us also change a few other situations here so that this is sustained. So our idea became then to train our women to become motorbike ambulance drivers, technicians, maintenance experts, the whole thing. And then the idea would be to run that service for a year on a pilot basis in the community to demonstrate, yeah, actually, if you've got fully trained riders, you've got the spare parts, you're doing the maintenance, this is a really cost-effective, reliable service that actually given that there's also 400 of these things around the country, this needs to be rolled out and we can make a huge impact. Um, and we can provide that that reliable emergency transportation system, which is largely absent, which is terrifying. So that became another part of our work. And very quickly, things totally snowballed <laughs> in a way which was thrilling, but also terrifying because by this point, it's still just me, Halidi, part-time because he's also running his own carpentry workshop where he has 10 apprentices many of whom are former street kids and he's doing incredible things but he's a busy man um so we all i also get approached by um some corporates around Africa who have workers and community members who are also having hideous accidents on motorcycles. And they say, can you come and run the training workshop for us? We can pay you for that. And clearly you can put the money then back into the project. So I find myself going to the DR Congo, uh, the Ivory Coast, Mali, all these incredible places that I never expected to, to go to, um, training over a thousand members of the community and workers in how to stay safe in a motorbike. Um, and these are communities with even more severe problems with motorbikes than, than Tanzania. So it was incredible experience. Um, so last year it was, it was, it was crazy how much happened, but we really have reached the point now that we're just about, I mean, this is why I'm in Sangarima today. We're, we're trying to finish um, the final stages of, of setting up this motorbike ambulance service. Um, but we've got so much more to do, but we haven't, the team is getting too small for the, for the amount of work that there is. We're also trying to train local motorbike taxi drivers and we've got all kinds of people interested in funding that part which is great but for the organization as a whole uh we just need more people more teams more trainers more everything because we're the only organization in africa that's running the service and there's just so much demand which is brilliant that, that, that there is that level of interest but it's also quite overwhelming at times because we just don't have the capacity to handle it. So, uh, and we've all, we self-funded everything so far. So we haven't got a big donor or a big social impact fund or something that's come in. We are really going on a shoestring. So it's, it's, yeah, it's interesting. So it's a business you set up to be a, a business. Like you said, it's not an NGO. It's not being financed from somebody from another country or, or something like that. So is the work that you're doing now, is that bring money back in? Is the business flourishing? Yeah. So, so to be super clear about it, it is a, technically it's a business, but we're running it as a social enterprise. And maybe people haven't heard so much about what that means. But basically what it means in this context is we have our basic costs. So, you know, workshop rent, electricity, salaries for our receptionist, blah, blah, blah. And at some point, hopefully a basic one for me <laughs> would be lovely. But once we've paid our costs, any profit we make that is in excess of that goes back in. So for example, from the corporate work we do, or to an extent, we also work for NGOs sometimes and we charge them a sort of middling rate. Any work, any income that we make, which is profit, goes back in and helps us to pay for our community projects. So whether that's subsidizing paying for bodder bodder training, the motorbike taxi training, that's they're called bodder bodders. They can't afford to pay much, but they still desperately need training. That subsidizes that work. The motorbike ambulance work, also subsidizes that work because at the moment we're offering that for free for a year. So the mission of our of our of our social enterprise is not to make 
specific people wealthy or anybody wealthy. We just want to pay everyone a fair wage. And then any profits go back into developing the community to, to just make sure we're doing everything we can to, to reduce motorcycle crashes and make sure that any motorbikes that are running are, are reliable and safe. So that's the way it's working. You mentioned that you work for NGOs sometimes. When you work for an NGO, do you charge in sort of Western dollars value-wise or do you charge in local value-wise? In other words, you know, like if you were to get something done in in the Western world, it would cost, you know, maybe tens of thousands of dollars, but maybe locally Mm. there it would be very, very small. Yeah, it's an interesting one, actually. Um, We have a model which basically it's a sliding scale. So for an NGO, put it this way. So for the corporates who are, we're talking about like big, big, some of the biggest mining companies in the world, we charge them the full rate, which would be like almost like a Western rate for a consultant coming in and doing that work because they can afford it. They expect to pay that rate. I think there's also sometimes a level of if you're too cheap, people think that possibly... (laughs) you're not the full ticket but that's great because it goes back in and that all goes back into the pot for an NGO no for me it's not really ethical to charge them those sorts of rates so we have a sort of middling to low charge price and it is really a local rate that we charge for NGOs because some of them are remarkably well funded but I you see a lot of variation in how their budgets are spent but we're not here to rip off NGOs so our rate is substantially lower than what a corporate would pay but it's kind of like the minimum that we can that we can charge um, to make ourselves a tiny income, but but we're not ripping the eyes out by any stretch. And then the border borders can pay. I mean, typically they can only pay like three pounds. Um, so in dollars, what like five ish dollars for a say three day training course. And it's important that they pay something because there's dignity in paying for something. Um, and also people tend to pay attention more if they've paid something for it. Um, and that literally covers the cost of printing the certificate at the end. And the certificate is very important to people and, and maybe a simple lunch and a soda. Um, but by no means does that cover our costs. So that's one of those things that we have to then take the money from the corporate to subsidize the border border. Um, so that's basically the model. Um, we're not really at the scale where it totally works yet, uh, which is why we don't really have as many staff um, in our HQ as I wish we did. Uh, so a lot of it falls back onto me. Um, but we've got some ideas as to how to overcome that. And and do you know what? In a way, the fact that we're not funded by a big organization, it allows us actually to be much more flexible because my whole thing is I really want us to be here to, to deliver the best value for the communities we work in and actually to make a real impact and to, for it to make sense because Sometimes, you know, I know in raw, I've, I've heard a few chats about maybe NGOs or projects that are doing things that don't make sense. And you think, well, hold on, but you're spending all this money on maybe vehicles, you know, buying flashy land cruisers. But, but how can that make sense when, you know, you, you look at things and you think that somebody hasn't really completely thought this through. And the beauty of us at least being pretty bootstrapped is we can be flexible because we're answerable to ourselves. And so actually, if we have a particular model of how something should work. And then we realize we need to tweak it a little bit and then it'd be so much more effective. We can do that and it's brilliant. Um, So actually at these initial stages, although it's tough, there's something beautiful about having a thing of, you know what, our focus is just that everything makes sense and that we're making the best impact for the local people as possible in however we do that. So we're able to do that. Uh, We can be flexible. And I know that some funders are very specific about what they'll give funding for in the way they'll give provide that. And you're very limited then. And then you, you can well be in a situation, I've seen it here a lot, 
people continue with a project for three years that they know isn't that effective just because that's what they signed up to do. And that doesn't make sense to me. So <laughs> we struggle a little bit, but, um, but we're getting there um, and things are going in the right direction. So I, I, I'm keeping the faith. <laughs> The boda boda, the taxi that you're you're saying about training mm. the taxi drivers, is that coming from licensing? Is the the government changed something where where the where the taxi drivers are now having to get a license? Is that what's happening? To an extent, yes. There's been a new president in for about the last two years, and he's all about anti-corruption um, and everything being correct and on the table. A lot of people have fake certificates of education, etc. The border borders generally don't. They generally just have no license and they've just been winging it for the last couple of years because no one checked and it didn't really matter. But that's becoming increasingly unacceptable. So we've had various border borders coming to our workshop looking quite panicked because they've been approached by a government official of some kind saying, where's your business license to operate as a border border? Where's your driving license? And if you don't have one and I find you again, you will be in prison or you'll face a fine that you basically can't afford. So it's really terrifying for these guys. So... There is absolutely a push towards um, licensing. But where we come into that is, well, the government colleges haven't really got the capacity to keep up with this demand. And actually, with all respect, the level and the depth of the training that you get at the government college is pretty mild. And it really isn't enough to keep you safe on the Tanzanian roads. It's simply not. So we've been working with the road traffic authorities in in, in uh, Mwanza and also in Gata region, which is a neighbouring one, to talk about hosting mass training events for Boda Boda. So not only do they absolutely respect and cover the Tanzanian syllabus, as is totally right, but we also supplement that with our tried and trusted, tested syllabus in road safety and maintenance and, and road signs and all these things, so that the licence really means something. And by the time they get to the end of their training after... Um, after three days or four days with us, they're then um, entitled to get a certificate to cash in for a, for a license. So um, so then they, they're getting that box ticked and now they have a license, but they're also really much safer. So that's something that we really want to do. Why motorcycles? I mean, you know, if motorcycles are, are such a problem, why not just vehicles? Um, well, I, I should say four-wheel vehicles. Yeah, Um Maybe. Well, do you know what? I guess the thing is, the motorcycles here are so prolific. You know, the, it's the thing that the masses can afford in Tanzania. It's different in Malawi. In Tanzania, it's affordable to buy a motorcycle. You can buy one for $500. So, And if you're not the person, generally the motorbike taxi drivers don't own them. They rent them from someone else, but they're accessible to everybody. So if you're talking about what makes a difference to the masses and to the people, particularly in the lower income brackets, it's motorcycles. Most people don't have the luxury of affording to pay for a taxi or a car. So this issue with the motorcycles is a much, much bigger problem than cars. I mean, if you look at the crash statistics, um, most people involved in crashes are either in buses um, for all sorts of reasons. Obviously, the crash rate there is very, very high and high impact. But then it's people on two feet and two wheels who are then also suffering a very large proportion of the crashes. So, and in Tanzania, it's generally not bicycles, it's generally motorcycles. So that's it's kind of the biggest demographic of where those road traffic accidents are coming from. And now, this is something that really shocked me as well. I remember seeing a graph somewhere which showed you that over the next, well, this was two years ago, it was showing the trajectory of malaria deaths, which are thankfully now largely under control in a lot of developing countries. Uh, deaths from HIV, which thankfully now are on the decline, and then road traffic deaths, which are totally overtaking both of those things. And if you look at the number of programs and interventions that have tried to tackle malaria and HIV, there's loads and quite rightly, and they've had an impact. But road traffic accidents are totally getting left behind. Um, and in most developing countries, definitely Tanzania, it's all about the motorcycles. 
So, yeah, I mean, cars do come in, but generally it's, 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 it's a very few people that can afford to be in a car. So for the, for the masses, we're talking about motorcycles. Is life better in Wanza now, statistically, because of your program? I would actually say not yet. No, because um, most of our work, certainly last year, the border border training work and the community work was actually in other places because the mines were saying, I need to come to Mali, I need to come to Ivory Coast. So we know that where we worked, for example, in the Congo, and we've heard the same thing, but it was just so much more severe in the Congo, they were having so many crashes and they were so devastating. And we know that, I mean, we trained 600 motorbike taxi drivers and passengers as well in that community in two weeks. And we've heard that the crash rate has really gone down in that community, which is the best news ever because those were great people. They were largely literate. They had such tough living conditions. And I thought, you know, if you can just make an impact on that one thing, it does make a big difference. So that was just the best news hearing that, that that's happened. It's got to be sustained, but that is that is great. In Wanza itself, we haven't really done that much with the motorbike taxi drivers yet because we're also trying to get some funding together to run this border border training scheme. Um, but I think if we had this conversation again in a year's time, I really hope to be able to say, because we're planning it and we've got a few things lined up, that we've trained hopefully something like 5,000 motorbike taxi drivers in Wanza region and also Gator region. We've by that point been running our motorbike ambulance service for a year and we will have done looks like something like nearly a thousand ride outs for laboring mothers, newborn babies who are struggling and other people who have healthcare emergencies that desperately need reliable and urgent transport to hospital. So I think by that point, um, it's, it's been largely a year of setup for that motorbike ambulance service, but we're really very nearly there. Um, there's every reason to think that we'll be able to, to say that, which is really exciting. I mean, it's quite a mountain to climb, but it's really exciting. Claire, where do you see your future going with all of this? I mean, is this going to be something you can sustain for the rest of your life? Have you thought about that? Oh, do you know, it's a really interesting question. I probably am chunking it down into like five-year blocks, I guess. And I have to say that last year, things grew and took off in a way that I could never have imagined. I can't imagine I'm going to be doing anything different for the next five years, put it that way. Ultimately, there's no reason why I have to be necessarily in charge of Picket Lily or running it because actually none of what I do is rocket science. And I would love to ultimately find some Tanzanians in Tanzania to run it, but I can absolutely see the need to expand it into other countries. I mean, we've already got incoming demand from, you know, many parts of the continent, but we had a really brilliant volunteer last year. He's British, but his family are from Thailand. He said, you think this is bad? <laughs> Come and check out what's going on with the motorbikes in a lot of Asia. And, you know, I can totally see that given that this is now one of the biggest killers worldwide in developing countries of road traffic accidents and 42% are coming from people on two feet and two wheels. This is a huge issue and it just isn't being addressed. Hang so on, stop I can't right imagine. there. Hang on. You just said yeah. motorcycles are the biggest killer. Repeat that again, please. So, 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 road, so yeah, it's a big one. So road traffic accidents are now the biggest cause of death or one of the biggest causes of death in the developing world. So like I say, Malaria, not so much of a big issue. It's it's there. I'm not denying it's there, but it's under control. It's on the wane. HIV, similarly. Road traffic deaths, out of control. And there's all sorts of reasons, you know, the, the rate at which roads are now being tarmacked and therefore the traffic gets quicker is going up because investment from Chinese and whatever else. The people's ability to, to own motorized vehicles is going up. Um, the ability of governments to enforce road safety measures, it's the last thing that governments tend to think about. So you're seeing an issue where 
there are more vehicles on the road, the, the roads are faster and people aren't able to manage that. So it's actually now a leading cause of death in developing countries across the world, road traffic accidents as a whole. So whether it's in buses, trucks, cars, motorbikes, but 42% of those are people on two feet, so pedestrians, and two wheels, bicycles and motorbikes. But motorbikes is a huge chunk of that. So it's not just Africa, it's the developing world, it's terrifying. And of course, that's the most vulnerable too. the people who are walking on bicycles and motorcycles. That's the vulnerable part of the population when it comes to transport. This is it. And you know, if you're not wearing a helmet, the chance of having a serious life at altering head injury or death is 70%. You know, you're so vulnerable. And it's not to say that you should be afraid and never use it. But like you say, I mean, you just you've got to have a chance of training and being smarter and having the right kit and the whole thing. So I don't see this problem, sadly being cured in the next five years. I just don't think it's going to happen. I think the reaction's been too slow. So I can definitely see that we're going to be chipping away at this for quite a long time. And also this issue of rural um, uh, health transportation. It's a huge problem. And Tanzania is not the only problem, the, the only country with issues of maternal mortality or a lack of rural transportation. So I think we could be busy for quite a long time, uh, which is which is interesting and it's a good challenge. But uh, yeah, I don't see us being packed up in a year, no. Well, in the Western world where we're comparatively very rich, all of us, what can we do to assist with what you're doing? Oh, good question. Um one of the things is, I mean, it varies completely. I mean, even spreading the word, um, liking our Facebook page, which is literally just forward slash Piccalilly spelt P-I-K-I-L-I-L-Y. Um, if people out there have magazines, newspapers, whatever, they want to write an article, that, that helps us get the word out. But ultimately, the two biggest factors that are constraining our ability to grow what we do and make an impact on more people is money. And kind of one thing that goes hand in hand at that with is really human resources. So we have some specific vacancies right now for jobs that we need doing, which actually require people to volunteer their time. Largely we can provide board and lodging, but that's kind of it for maybe even six months and, and to fulfill a specific job. And hopefully after that to train a local person to then replace them. But that would be an incredible step for us to be able to grow our our work, be able to bring in some more income to be able to then, you know, sustain everything, but without having to desperately find the money for a, a, an actual salary that we don't really have the money for in the meantime. So if there's people out there that think, hey, I could be interested in joining that team as a volunteer, um, and maybe I can give up three or six months of my time, let us know, because uh, we really are looking, we've got specific job descriptions out for people uh, we would so appreciate that help because that will enable us to transform what we're doing and give also give me the chance to go after some other opportunities so that we can we can grow our work. Um, without that, we're a little bit stuck at the moment with the scale of what we're doing, um, which isn't really, I mean, we could just be doing so much more if we just had a bit more capacity. So if people, and similarly, I mean, if people out there do know of uh, maybe they work for a company and they have a really great corporate giving scheme or they're interested in in investing or donating to projects like this in developing countries, then please let us know. I mean, that's always fantastic. Or if people out there work for even a social impact fund that might be interested, it's possible. Um, then again, we would absolutely love to hear about it. Um, so those are the big things really. But simply spreading the word, we love that. Um, and, and, you know, just showing some support that way. It means a lot to us. So all kinds of ways. 
Claire, it was a real pleasure getting to know about you and Pick a Lily. Thanks very much for coming on. Thank you, Jim. It's been absolutely amazing. Thank you for this chance. I've been speaking with Claire Elsden from her new home in Tanzania, and uh, you can find out more about what she's doing with Pick a Lily by dropping by their website, www.pickalily.com. And of course, that link will be in our show notes. Coming up next, we've got Graham Field, who's at Pick a Lily in Tanzania, volunteering for a couple of weeks. Stay with us. Tanzania, right in the very north, a place called Mwanza, which is right on the banks of Lake Victoria, which, if you look at a map of Africa, is the big watery spot and is also the source of the Nile. So, yeah, that's where I am, North Tanzania. Source of the Nile, nice. And there's, and there's like three countries that are, or more, is there, that borders Lake Victoria? It's a big, big lake. Yeah, um, Kenya and oh, my, my, my geography of of Africa is appalling. I'm getting a little bit better being here, but any other continent on the planet, I'm, I'm pretty good, but yeah, not Africa. That's okay. Afterwards, what we'll do is we'll get you to say a country and then I'll just throw it in there. I'll just cut it and split it and throw the, the word in there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Dublin. Oh no, that's a... <laughs> <laughs> but, but what you're really doing is you're down there to help pick a lily. Uh, well, yeah. Um, I've known Claire for maybe five years, met at various bike shows and presentations, and she does uh, these video updates, which I've watched on YouTube of the whole Piccadilly thing and what goes on. And last winter, I, I sort of thought, or like the, end, the beginning of the winter, I thought, you know, I'd really like to go and see if I can do anything helpful. Um, anyway, long story short, um, I there, there was a really cheap flight, significantly cheaper than all the other flights, and uh, so I booked it. <laughs> I gave her about four days' notice, <laughs> and uh, and I really knew nothing. This it was quite exciting because I just didn't know on any level anything about what I was about to experience in country, in culture, in climate, and in Piccadilly. So I, I get this. I mean, listeners to Adventure Rider Radio probably listen to Raw, where we give travel advice. And what I had to do, I landed in, in uh, Dar es Salaam, well, Dar es Salaam, yeah, which is like the main, not the capital, but still the main city, and then had to get a, a little flight up to Mwanza. I had the whole day. I had 12 hours to kill. And Claire said, would you meet a friend of mine who's going to give you a package to bring up? Because it's very expensive to put it on the on the bus, the post doesn't really work. So I met this guy, never met before in my life, to pick up a plastic bag <laughs> and put in my backpack. I can hear your mum's voice flight. screaming in your head, Graham, don't take a package from a stranger. <laughs> I could hear my own voice, Grant's voice, everybody's voice. I mean, you just don't do that. So I met the guy and... Um, we contacted via WhatsApp and I met the guy and he's got this plastic bag all wrapped up and I said so it's it's just drugs and and arms right (laughs) (laughs) and he said he said no it's not what's in it anyway so I start putting my backpack I haven't got any spare time to catch my flight he said you're not going to check it 
And I said, well, no. I said, I have to trust you. What else am I going to do? Am I going to start opening the bag and say, oh, you know, this Coke doesn't look pure or whatever. So, yeah. um, so, <laughs> so, so uh, no one stopped me and it was fine. It turned out it had. It did actually have medical supplies in it, among other things. So, so anyway. I digress. So having taken this package and not been arrested, so I get to uh, Wanza and uh, get to see what's going on in Piccadilly. And, um, you know, the the workshop is beautiful. It's a purpose-built workshop, which was done through crowdfunding. And, um, well, I mean, I didn't really know what I could do, but I just sort of, and also sort of being big-headed about it, it was like, stand aside, I'll fix this. It was nothing like that. It was just, well, in fact, complete opposite. It's like, you know, we don't want white man coming here and saying, well, let me fix this for you. Let me do this. So they had some tool boards and I made some tool boards and I put a light up and got the bathroom door to close and little things. But the big thing I'm seeing is how Claire is just pulled in every direction um, because she's it's almost a, a, a one woman band. And um, and unfortunately, the direction she's been pulled in and not in the productive directions, there's, you know, government want this doing and this tax office needs doing and these contracts need signing. You need this machine. And she's just running around trying to get all this stuff. And you can see that there is progress, but in a very frustrating way. So it's. And, you know, the newcomer wide-eyed is can, can, can see the wood from the trees and kind of sees what's going on. And I can see the infuriation of, 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 of just dealing with this stuff in a foreign country. Is some of that, though, the, the thing of arriving in Africa and sort of getting the feel for the rhythm of, the, of, the, of society there in different parts of Africa? Because we hear it a lot, you know, sort of that... Um, you, you learn patience. You learn that things don't happen every day and you can't expect it to happen when you think it's going to happen. Is that part of it? Definitely. Uh, you've got to have patience. You've got to realize it's a different culture. They have different priorities. And what we would do in the West isn't necessarily what they would do. It's not wrong or it's not right. It's just different. And you have to dance to the beat of their drum because otherwise you're just going to get frustrated and you have got to have patience. But at the same time, so should they to a degree because you don't know the system and you're not out to rip anybody off. And particularly in the case of Piccadilly, you are out to help people, to help train riders, to help employ locals, to help fix motorcycles. And you are there for the good of the trunk, but the government offices will not accept that. They will not. It's not that they're going to give you a little bit of leniency because you're an organization of good, but it's just, this needs pay now. This needs doing that. Well, you told us that we didn't have to do this until we made a certain amount of money. Well, we need to do it now. So drop everything. You have to go to this office to sort out this problem now. So, you know, they don't have patience. <laughs> and all that draws from the time that, uh, that Claire has to do the other things that she's supposed to be doing or that she wants to do. Uh, I think I have arrived at one of the most stressful weeks in the history of Piccadilly, and I said to her, you know, if you ever write a book about this, could I write the foreword? Because what I've seen, you know, is is the directions you're being pulled in and everything else you're having to deal with. And uh, if you can get through this week, you can get through anything because you really are. You really are suffering. So what she really needs is two, two things. Volunteers would be fantastic. Anybody who's looking to, uh, who has time, wants to work for a, a good cause. And then of course, money influx, you know, anybody who's got to spare cash, so to speak, to put towards a good cause again, because it's, it's going to change people's lives, isn't it? 
It does. And, you know, everybody wins in this. It is a wonderful organization that, that doesn't trample on anybody's feet. But um, for an example, so, yes, there have been donations of tools and everything. So, you know, I saw it, everything out, put it on the tool board. So we've got all our, our spanners, our wrenches lined up and our crosshead screwdrivers and, and that. So there's a little bit of structure there, which, of course, saves you a lot of time when you're working on a bike, you're not hunting around. But I had to put a light up over the desk, relatively straightforward job. The drill we've got has an Australian plug on it because it was donated from Australia. The, so that was bodged into a Tanzanian contact uh, sort of socket. And so every time I put a pull on it, it comes apart and it doesn't work. And every aspect of the job you try and do, I get a long life light bulb and uh, it turns out it's a screw fit, but the actual light fitting is a bayonet fit. And everything takes time. And then when I finally got it all done, I got the contacts in, got the pull switched on, got it all there, finally got the light bulb, there's an electricity cut. (laughs) 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 It's just, this is a relatively simple job, but with the tools you have and the environment you're working in, it's just nothing is easy. Nothing, nothing flows. And so, yeah, a volunteer, I, you know, I had a, a little this morning, I was thinking. I feel like you know, as a guest, there have been so much as, as as a host, and I don't really feel like I'm doing that much. And I said, Claire, you know, is there anything else we do? She, I said, I'm not doing that much hands-on. She said, Listen, you may have come with the you know expectations of working on motorcycles, but what you're actually doing is offering moral support and guidance and advice as someone to vent at, and and that's a very important part of your job description right now. So. <laughs> And it's the only thing you can do, you know. <laughs> so you're not working on bikes, or, or have you worked on bikes? I have worked on bikes. They've, they've got this. They've got this appalling KLX, which I volunteered to do some work on. And um, you pull, pull. The, it's the, the problem was obviously carburation, and pulled the carb apart. And it's just like one of these bikes. And as you start to take off the side panels that are wired together, and and a, and a seat that's and a, a tank that's velcroed on, and you finally get to the carburetor, and and you see that both jets have been mangled with vice grips, and you're trying to poke a little bit of broken clutch cable wire through a jet to unblock it and you think <laughs> on a dozen, and you just, this is not the ideal environment and in any other circumstance you just say ditch it you know but it's not what you're here to do you're here to improvise and you use ingenuity and get the thing to work and uh, so six hours oh and there was a total power cut yesterday so six hours in I could have got the choice of being under a burning sun or in a dark workshop to try and work on this thing. <laughs> and, in, uh, and, and it was kind of, it was, it was a year ago today or a year ago that day when I'd um, had my uh, broken back bolted back together. And I was kicking over a bike relentlessly trying to start it. So it was kind of symbolic, but I at least had the ability to kick over a bike now. Unfortunately, not the ability to start the bloody thing. But um, <laughs> I was, <laughs> didn't lose too much sleep over it last night. Went to day and instead of using um, instead of using optimism I use realism and found a, an actual cause for the problem so uh, all we got to do now is get some car cleaner and fix it so yeah to answer your question I have been doing a little bit of work on bikes but um, I suppose I'm filling my days I might be of some use to them but yes definitely volunteers because anything and even you don't have to be mechanically minded if, you know There are grants which are openly available to Piccadilly, but it just takes the time to apply for these grants. And um, 
there are so many different aspects of of help that could be used. Um, and of course, money. Uh, but it's not just like give me your money. There, there are uh, sort of training that needs to be done, and there's. Well, actually, they've got an okay tool supply, but you could always use a few more things. Like, I wanted to blow out the carb. I know they've got a compressor, brilliant, but it turns out that the tyre pressure gauge has been taped, or the tyre the, the, the pump has been taped to the hose. It's like, oh, you could really use a better way of changing your various spray guns and, and stuff onto it. So, I, I mean, it, it's not less like, oh, you know, send us 20 pounds or twenty dollars on PayPal. You could I'm sure Claire's already told you about the website. You can genuinely look at what they do and where the money goes. And the great thing about it is the money goes straight to the people who need it. It's not going through a bunch of admin and bureaucracy. It's actually being used hands on and you can see and you will see on the YouTube updates where it's going. Um, and I did play with this. I thought, well the money I'm going to spend on a flight, should I just send them that? And I thought, well no, because I want to see what's going on. And, and when you do, you become even more passionate about it and, and you feel even more a part of it. When, when I'm talking about future stuff and we're having our little brainstorm sessions, I find myself saying we instead of you because I already feel a part of Piccadilly. might be a bit presumptuous on my part, but it's great to, it's great to feel that you're, you are doing something, however little it is. When you just say grants, is it something that somebody could do from uh, another country, like through the Internet? Totally. And this is, we were discussing, maybe we should do, there are people who specifically apply for grants, they're called grant writers. But there are also, anybody can do it, of course, because there's various sort of social impact uh, organizations who are there with a, a, a budget, which, um, you know, Claire's organization is entitled to. So yes, you could get in touch with Claire with Piccadilly, and there are lots of things you can do with the beauty of the internet from wherever you are and to, to lighten her load. And it would genuinely, genuinely lighten her load. So, um, yeah, you don't have to come all the way to Mwanza here, sit under a mosquito net like I am talking to you. You can do it from home. <laughs> How long are you there for? Uh, I've got about another week, something like that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, so I might get that car fixed in that time. <laughs> <laughs> so is it, is it making the impression on you as a place that you want to go back to? Is Tanzania sort of, a, you know, going to be a tourist destination for you? Yeah, I, ask me when I've seen something. <laughs> All I've seen is the workshop <laughs> and a couple of supermarkets. I've never been to a country and seen so little, but it was not about being a sightseer or being a tourist. Having said that, I may spend a few days in Zanzibar before I leave, but... Um, the, the people are wonderful. The smiles are huge. And the, they have a very prolonged welcoming system. You know, hello, how are you? How are your parents? How was your day? How is your morning? So if you urgently want to say, have you got the keys? It doesn't work like that. You've got to go through this prolonged <laughs> gratitudes. Uh, so, I mean, and I have, I have been lucky enough to meet, you know, se- several locals that have all been so welcoming. I think I've learned five words of Swahili so far. Uh, so definitely for the people alone, what I've seen, lovely, and I feel so welcome. Um, but yeah, it would be nice to perhaps see the Serengeti or Kilimanjaro or Zanzibar or Lake Tanganyika. But, you know, <laughs> just getting the car fixed for now will be plenty. <laughs> What's the five words? Uh, I guess, hello, it's Jambo. Uh, welcome is um, caribou. Everybody says caribou. Welcome. 
uh, way way is you, but it's got loads of different connotations. So little kids, you know, trying to beg for money, it's like way way. It's like you bugger. <laughs> or, <laughs> so it's very much the phrase you do it. Waheri is goodbye. Uh, sorry, which I seem to say a lot, is pole. And um, what was the other one I learned? Well, there you go. That's something going on with. Yeah, that's pretty impressive. I thought I would have caught you there. I thought you were going to tell me you couldn't remember. <laughs> so I'm impressed already. <laughs> well, Graham, you have a, a great time. I hope you pick up more of the language while you're there for the, the rest of the days that you're there. And I'll talk to you later. Okay, nice one, Jim. See ya. And of course, that was Graham Field from uh, Piccalilli headquarters in Tanzania, Africa. I just want to remind you this episode was made possible for you today in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com. Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com. Green Chili Adventure Gear at www.greenchiliadv.com. And MotoBreeze Chain Oilers, www.motobreeze.com. about wraps up another episode of adventure rider radio and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it special thanks to our producer elizabeth martin and to you the listener thank you very much for listening we appreciate you being a part of the show well that about wraps things up i want to remind you about our other show arr raw that is a once a month show that's a roundtable talks about motorcycle travel you have to subscribe separately you can see that on our website everything's at our website www.adventureriderradio.com you can listen to all of our episodes there both shows and of course you can get them anywhere that podcasts are downloaded go to any podcast provider and you'll be able to find our show there now if you drop by our website and look at the show notes for this episode and all of them dating back to january of this year you'll notice that we put in transcripts for adventure rider radio and that way you can go back and look things up you can um, double check things you might have heard and you might have uh, wondered about something that we've said you want to reread it it's all there drop by the website and check it out and if you like what we're doing and you'd like to help the show out we depend on a model here of advertising and listener support to make the whole thing work and uh, drop by our website click on the support button anything $10 or more is going to get you a sticker sent back at you anything $50 or more is going to get you a mention on our raw show at the start of the show so drop by and check it out if you can if not we appreciate you listening anyway thank you very much my name is jim martin this is adventure rider radio now it's time to get out there and ride your bike ride safe see you next week hi this is chris the blind scooter guy and you're listening to adventure rider radio (laughs) 